0: This is episode 57 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, April 25th, 2023. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Ryan Benrose. If you're a listener to my other show, Grumpy Old Benz, last week, I, uh, I introduced this topic there, but I don't know if I brought it up here. Um, I, I hope it does not come through, but there is a lot of heavy construction going on right behind me. There's a house going in two blocks away, and they have had dump trucks going starting at 7 in the morning going up and down our street. Every day for the last week and a half now, um, I hope it doesn't come through, but I tell you what, this is definitely going to have an impact later in the year as the temperature climbs and I have to keep windows open because, uh, I, I, I definitely dedicate some time to professionalism in podcasting, but not so much that I want to heat up in my own house. So when, when the temperature's hot, those windows go on, uh, that said, um, Oh, I updated my script, uh, that checks on, uh, the, the, this podcasting 2.0 thing. I think it's starting to get some legs. I'm pretty happy about that. Um, I finally updated my script so that I'm getting all of the boostograms that everybody else that, that was just running helipad was getting automatically. Of course I don't take software packages and do the easy route. No, I have to do everything on hard mode. So I've been running a PowerShell script that checks for boostograms and, uh, Came across the following, which uh, it tells me that um, it it's not entirely clear to me that my node is still fully up and running, and I might need to uh to go badger the podcast index node for for some liquidity or something. But uh, uh got a boost in from uh, Curtis Peterson says uh, last week. Said thanks for the great show. You'll have to forgive my spotty donations as I'm settling into the Albi ecosystem. Have you come across any automatic donation software shy of Boost CLI I can access from a Windows workstation? Well, for me, Boost CLI is it. So I'm not really sure uh, what's going to work well for you. Um, I'm betting, however, there are other listeners that will definitely be able to help out. So if you've got suggestions, send them in or better yet, send them to Curtis. Um, You know, that said, a little bit later, Curtis Peterson says... Uh, hi, Ryan. Thanks for the great show. Can you please take a look at your wallet for inbound capacity? I tried to boost at last week and yesterday, and it errored out multiple times. Then Curtis Peterson said, testing on a work browser with a smaller boost. Then said from my tests, it looks like around 10,000 sats errors out with error payment feel failed. Does the receiver have enough inbound capacity? No route request failed status code 400. Hope this helps. Uh, the A couple of those were uh, much over the 10,000 and I definitely received them. So uh, I hope that you're not having problems or, or if unlike Curtis, you're not bothering to send me things. I hope it doesn't. Anyway, let me know if, if I I don't mind, I absolutely love getting donations. That's, you know, the kind of thing podcasters love. I don't mind if you don't donate. I mean, I'm going to guilt you, but I don't, if you want to listen and you get value other ways and you want to return value other ways, that's fine too but it really bugs me if you attempt to donate and it doesn't work because that means that something is still not functioning correctly so uh let me know i hope uh i hope everything's working right and if it's not um i mean there's always paypal that's still an option but uh, uh i don't know um i am just very happy to uh uh Curtis Peterson to Joel W Pfeiffer oh, I'll get to that later oh one other Uh, boost. Uh, Sir Spencer also had sent one mad respect to the angry tech. Here's a boost that could never be as hefty as that ex-girlfriend of yours. It was a throwaway comment on the last show. If you blinked, you missed it. But a lot of people decided to read something into my sexual tastes from that comment. So uh, I'll just let you guys keep wondering. From the waste not department. When the authoritarian lockdowns of 2020 put the world economy into a tailspin from which it has not yet recovered, institutions everywhere scrambled to figure out how to conduct business when nobody was allowed to leave their homes. That meant remote work. IT managers all over scrambled for the best deals to buy devices that could connect to the Internet and run remote applications. Enter the Chromebook, Google's low-cost web-only laptop that was actually introduced in 2011 but nobody cared about, Until such time as everybody needed to connect to the Internet all at once. Um, It's an Android based cheap laptop, uh, usually in the sub $200 range made by uh, Asus, Acer, uh, Lenovo, the the usual laptop makers. A lot of them that, uh, you know, when when $200 is just what Microsoft charges to put Windows onto a laptop, you want something lower cost to make. You decide to go with another operating system and Google definitely jumped in and provided with that. The system is intended to run a browser and pretty much nothing else, which does give you access to everything that Google imagines you could possibly want in a laptop these days. It gives you access to web search. It gives you access to Gmail, to Google docs, to Google reader. Oh, oops, not that one, uh, access to YouTube. It gives you access to pretty much all of the Google services that you could possibly want. And if you're connecting to anything that isn't Google, why Why would you do that? I mean, it's a Google thing, right? Anyway, at this all comes at half the price of a comparable Windows or Linux laptop or even less, you know, sometimes less than half. Um, and it comes at about a tenth the price of what Apple would charge for a laptop that does the same thing. So Chromebooks were pretty much a no-brainer to buy in bulk if you happen to be a really big organization. For example, uh, one highly publicized tech story at the time a couple of years ago, the California school system purchased nearly 50,000 Chromebooks on the California taxpayer's dime, of course, and distributed them to kids who, by the way, had no particular incentive to take care of them. Well, now, three years later, those IT managers are learning why the Chromebook books were so inexpensive. It's because they're cheap. Three years later, according to a report from the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, PIRG, Those Chromebooks are already reaching the end of their life. Uh, According to the report, the Chromebooks are harder to repair. They are seldom upgradable, if at all. And replacement parts are rare, generally already out of production as the companies have moved on. Um, One one thing in the article quoted uh, that a replacement keyboard from Acer for their $200 Chromebook, the keyboard, if you just want to replace that with $90, Um, which is, that's half the price for uh, something that it doesn't even have much in the way of chips. Some IT departments have started buying extra batches of Chromebooks just for parts, according to, uh, was it Mashable? I think I got this from, Uh, I might've, yeah. Um, Some IT departments have started buying extra batches of Chromebooks just for the parts. And uh, one of the quotes, uh, these high costs make, may make schools reconsider Chromebooks as a cost-saving strategy. Oh, you think? Oh, and Google, by the way, the uh, the pusher of this particular drug of choice, does not help. Google has an auto-update expiration. Uh, eight years after a model of Chromebook is certified, uh, Google stops offering updates. And because it's Google, and I've definitely railed against this before, Google's method of not supporting things doesn't mean, oh, we're not going to give you updates. It means we're going to remotely reach into your system and brick it. So these the software operating system that comes on these Chromebooks has a hard uh, end of life because the software Google has decided that the software is just not going to work after that. Um, The problem is eight years seems like a while. But when a large IT procurement goes through, it can take up most of that time. Uh, Say, you know, you, you hear about the Chromebooks, you want to find some, you look for somebody who's got a big enough batch. You, you pick up last year's model because it's, uh, because it's, uh, cheaper. Um, they took a couple years to put the thing when you, what you end up with is by the time you have rolled out Chromebooks to your entire office, what you have is a machine that self-destructs in four years. So. The problem with the self-destruct is even if you wanted to, you can't really use them for very long. You can't resell them because of the short expiration date. The net result is that IT departments all over are being left with piles and piles of Chromebook e-waste, which you have to pay a ton to recycle it. And don't even get me started on whether or not the recycling is actually doing what they say, whether it's helping the earth or Um, You know, they get, uh, okay, the recyclers do get some of the stuff out, but it's not nearly as good. So the PIRG uh, decided to convert this e-waste number into a statistic that even the woke executives should take notice of. They say that doubling the lifespan of the 31.8 million Chromebooks sold in 2020 could cut emissions by 4.6 million tons of CO2 equivalent which is the same as taking 900,000 cars off of the road for a year. They also recommend that Google eliminate the automatic update expiration system. They recommend that OEMs produce a minimum of 10% overstock of replacement parts so that replacement parts can be had. They recommend that components of these uh, Chromebooks become more standardized And they recommend that Google allow expired Chromebooks to be unenrolled from Google's remote management and allow people to install other operating systems like Linux. Me, personally, my recommendations are much, much simpler. If you want to save money and save the environment, don't get a Chromebook. Buy some hardware that's going to last longer, not something you'll be throwing into the landfill after three years. Another follow-up, and hopefully the last one, on Netflix's War on Password Sharing. If you want to know the lead-up on this, go listen to Angry Tech News number 29, 32, 34, 37, 47, and 48. The Netflix crackdown on password sharing has come to the United States, according to Netflix's quarterly earnings report. They are pleased with the reaction that their new password policies have had in test markets like Canada and will be bringing it to the U.S. this quarter. The company is still tight-lipped on exactly what enforcement steps they're taking, but according to a quick scan of my previous ATN coverage, it will include more device authentication, forced re-logins, IP geolocation, and a great deal of harassment if you log in from anywhere but your defined home location. Or if, for example, just hypothetically, you happen to have more than one ISP in your house, which the company will almost certainly interpret as a different location. According to the quarterly report, the company, quote, expects a cancel reaction of some people angry with the services moves, but are confident that they will end up getting more paying customers after the change as people who have been freeloading convert to full paid accounts. I don't know how many people they think they're doing that. Okay, I'm done with this. I don't want to talk about this company anymore. A a crackdown on password sharing might temporarily slow their death spiral, give them a quarter or two of positive numbers that the executives can wave at the shareholders while the executives strap on their golden parachutes. But mark my words, this company is going down, and no amount of crackdowns or enforcement will prevent that. The only way that they are going to pull out of this nosedive is to start doing right by their customers again. But yeah, in what world is that going to (laughs) happen? From the Human Interaction Department, TechSpot reports on a new trend in iPhone thievery where losing your phone can get you permanently locked out of your entire Apple ecosystem, making you the next victim in Apple's constant war between convenience and security where the company is playing both sides and you are the casualty. The hack goes like this. You've got your phone out at a bar. I don't know. Maybe you're looking up sports scores, Maybe you're checking Wikipedia for a stupid factoid to make your buddy look dumb. Or maybe, maybe you're just so addicted to social media you cannot possibly go a whole hour without checking on your likes. Either way, a would-be thief can be looking over your shoulder while you enter the pin on the phone. Any later, they just yoink your phone right off of the table, log in, and activate a feature called a recovery key, a feature that Apple introduced in 2020 in order to stop iPhone thieves. It generates a code, which the code is stored on your phone that locks out any changes to your Apple ID settings. So the thieves can yoink your phone, change the password, and then immediately issue a recovery key, which you don't have the key because you don't have your phone. And suddenly it's not your Apple account anymore. You can't log in. You can't do anything. And no amount of whining at the genius desk is going to make them care about your ass. So, so suddenly all of your contacts, all your cloud photos, all your saved iPad butt pics, gone, locked out. Find my phone also won't help because, oh, right, you need your account. So you're, I mean, I don't, the, the story, the, the article that I went to um, showed some very whiny stories about people who had exactly this happen. And I don't know, serves them right for having an iPhone, but uh, I'm, I'm in the minority there. You know what? Let's just assume that I'm not totally insensitive The good thing is that in order to do this, a thief does in fact need your pin or your passcode to get into the phone. Uh, It's one of the few places where biometrics can actually help. Although the thieves can tip the scales by uh, there. There was an article a couple weeks ago uh, where a thief would go by and just surreptitiously spray a little bit of sugar water on your phone that uh, it dries clear. You can't really tell it's there, but it completely distorts the fingerprint or face scanner. So you have to enter in your pin. So uh, you know, they can you can combine different hacks. Anyway, so TechSpot recommends that's where I got the article. TechSpot. I need to put these at the top of the art of my notes. TechSpot recommends that you enable Face ID on your phone. Although my opinion, that comes with its own security challenges, like well, pretty much see every problem associated with biometrics. For example, if uh, the database gets hacked, you can't really change your face. Uh, Techspot also recommends that you use a long custom alphanumeric passcode that's hard for thieves to remember. Although because you're going to be entering it all the time, it's got to be something you can remember. And uh, let's just assume that if a thief is setting out for the purpose of stealing your phone and staring over your shoulder for that, I'd hardly count on them forgetting it just because it's a word instead of a number. Uh, In a pinch, TechSpot also recommends that you turn on the screen time feature, which neuters your iPhone's ability to manage your Apple ID account and pretty much is tantamount to you deciding that you are a child who cannot be trusted with your own phone. Me? I'm just going to recommend something simpler. I'm going to recommend that you do not take your phone out at the bar. There are other humans around you whom you can talk to, socialize with, interact with, have real interactions The internet can wait, I swear it to you. I lived the first half of my life with no instant access to social media. And as you can tell, I turned out just fine. From the revenue streams in drought conditions department, Silicon Valley companies have been riding high for more than a generation on the advertising business model. Over two decades, you know the model, Bring in the users with free, show ads to the users, and also on the back end, collect user data, collect everything you can find about the user because you can sell that data to advertisers. Step three, profit. This model is drying up. Uh, Advertising is going out the door. Data is still big, uh, but there aren't as many people out there who just want to pay for ads. So free is becoming a very difficult business model to handle, leading companies to seek out other options. For example, Netflix, who decided their other option was squeezing customers who haven't jumped ship. But some inventive companies are instead finding new ways to sell your data. Two stories came out this week about both Reddit and Stack Overflow choosing to sell access to the user-generated and arguably user-owned content that their users have been providing for free for years. Or less than free because the company has also been monetizing you with ads. So... You're paying to make the content, and now the companies are selling it. Reddit announced that they are going to start charging for access to its API. Uh, (laughs) Quote from CEO Steve Huffman. It is a good time for us to tighten things up. We think that's fair. Yeah, buddy, you're the one making millions. We're the ones who've been advertised to, and now you're selling my conversations. That's fair. Yeah, screw you. uh, He also said Reddit is a home for authentic conversation. Well, yeah, maybe it was before they started ramping up their censorship efforts in the last five years. More like right now it's a home for approved, censor-friendly, whitewashed conversation, usually from only one side of the political aisle. But I digress. Stack Overflow also announced that they are going to charge AI companies for access to their questions and answers. Uh, they They say in the announcement that they have 50 million questions and answers, all provided by users, and they are complaining that the LLM, uh, large language model AI developers, are violating Stack Overflow's terms of service. Which, according to their terms of service, the content, all the content you provided by users, is creative commons. Comments. It is owned by its author. Um, Stack Overflow has a license to use it, but that AI developers are violating the Creative Commons license as they are not crediting the source of the information as the CC license, CC by license requires. Uh, By the way, I think that's absolutely true. I think that there's, uh, you know, but there are a ton of new lawsuits that have been coming out in the last couple months of lots and lots and lots of people getting really freaked out that the AI models are Uh, you know, going out to the internet where, hey, everything's free on the internet, right? And they're going out and they're scraping other sites and now the people who are running the other sites are going, oh, hold on. Anyway, um, the problem for Stack Overflow is that this very license may end up coming back to haunt them if they start profiting off of the user data because the Creative Commons license um, doesn't necessarily allow Stack Overflow to be profiting off of it either. Uh, Stack Overflow are the custodian's of something a lot better than AI data. They are the custodians of the product of actual intelligence, not artificial intelligence, intelligence provided by real people, people, coders, programmers, designers, developers, people who get paid for their coding. Um, you know, Reddit is full of comments from people who have no clue what the hell they're talking about. Usually there's some idiot college student who's just taking their first gender studies course but Stack Overflow has got to be careful. This content came from people who are professionals and get paid for this stuff. And they only did this for free on Stack Overflow many times uh, years and years ago, back when Stack Overflow was still run by a couple of people who really agreed that this should be available for everybody forever and that it should be public. And um, the company, I kind of abandoned Stack Overflow. In maybe 2016 about the time that the company changed hands and started really, really uh, well, they started going woke for one thing. They started really uh, ramping up the content moderation. They started uh, uh, favoring the newbie moron, idiot user who asks the same question. How do I print in JavaScript over and over and over again? And uh, really cracking down on, you know, Like actually banning users for saying uh, RTFM, which, by the way, if you know anything about how the Internet and how the computing era started, it started on the backs of people who've been there, done that, who were very happy to try to help out, but did not have enough patience to put up with this kind of stupid question by idiot users asking the same thing over and over again. So RTFM is baked into the entire setup, the, the whole Function of the internet is you are getting people's time, but you have to respect people's time because they are providing it for free. And when they tell you to RTFM, you better go RT the FM. Anyway, Stack Overflow kind of changed that. Um, They have been failing. They now have decided that they're going to take all of those answers that were provided for free by experts, by people who really know what the hell they're talking about. They're going to charge people for it. This is a dangerous place for them to be. And I look forward to more articles where people really bitch out the company for trying to profit off of uh, this stuff. I'll tell you what, I personally have answered dozens of questions on Stack Overflow. So where's my check? Angry thanks go out to Curtis Peterson, Baron Spud the Mighty, Sir Sean of the Allegheny Valley, and Progo for their generous donations using fiat money. And to Curtis Peterson again, Sir Spencer, Curtis Peterson, Pfeiffer, Curtis Peterson, Joel W., and Curtis Peterson for boosting the show using a modern podcast app. Buddy, they're getting through. You can slow down now. Or don't. Angry Tech News is produced on the value-for-value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we do not charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the Donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's in government money or in electronic money. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer with a mic. I'll be back next week with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News, with the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose, at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.
1: Howdy, y'all. Rev here. This rant is titled, Bluetooth headsets, and the utter fuckification of the words heavy duty. As many of you know, I'm an over-the-road truck driver, and over the last 20-some-odd years, I've accumulated over 2.25 million accident and ticket-free miles. Those of you keeping score, the average non-commercial driver gets about 12 to 15,000 miles a year. So I spend a lot of time observing John Q. Public's driving ability. And I gotta say, a lot of you need to have your driving privileges burned at the stake. But that's a different rant. In my career, I've owned a lot of Bluetooth headsets, ranging from compact single-ear models to $400-plus stereo cans with a I use them every day, all day. They come in different models, colors, and tech specs. But the one thing the vast majority of headsets have in common is build quality, or more precisely, a stunning lack of it. In the world of trucking, Heavy duty has a precise meaning. This shit can take a UFC beating and be ready for another fight in the morning. It won't quit, fail, or leave you without your equipment until you can afford to replace it. Trucker Tough used to be a point of pride for many brands. It signified that you can rest easy in your decision to shell out ridiculously inflated sums for the item. Not so much nowadays. You see, Companies have been steadily eroding the concept of heavy-duty. Now it's nothing but a synonym for cheap plastic Chinese garbage. The number of headsets I've had to throw away after mere months of use is staggering. In the last year alone, I've thrown away $1,300 hoping my next pair will actually last longer than a roll of toilet paper at Taco Bell. The last pair lasted a good two and a half months before a structural defect neutered them. The company's response? Yeah, our engineers are looking at the problem. Here's a replacement pair with the same retarded build quality. I'm currently looking into rebuilding it with aluminum parts, so if anyone knows anyone with a CNC machine, I want to talk to them. These things are being built with the cheapest, best-priced Chinese plastic, piss-poor soldering, and more shoddy stress points than a woke I'm-triggered convention. I remember $3 GI Joes from the 80s with tougher plastic. My last pair cost $450, and has a stress point that's held together with two laptop case screws driven into a half-inch plastic tab that supports the entire ear cup. Taking a headset off and putting it on puts stress cracks across the tab, eventually weakening it so much that it just snaps while wearing it. Blue Parrot, Rand McNally, Blue Tiger, Road King, and Garmin. I've used nearly every model they've put out. None of them are worth the gum stuck to my steer tires. The longest lasting headset I've owned is an old Plantronics Voyager 5200 that I bought back in 2016. These trucker tough, sarcasm implied, headset manufacturers can take a few cues from this damn near indestructible little compact mono headset. After eight years of torture, the damn thing still works.